Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Data Protection Tea Break. I'm Kirsty Bogle and I'm joined by our Data Protection Commissioner, Emma Martins. Today is a slightly different cup of tea, and so I'd like you to imagine it being poured from a proper pot in a knitted tea cosy. And that's made with leaves, not bags, and possibly even poured into an actual cup with a saucer. Sound like something you're more likely to get at your granny's? Well, that's the idea, as we're taking you back in time to talk about the origins of data protection. Being in Guernsey, we have a rich history and culture that can be traced back many years. The Bailiwick boasts Neolithic burial sites and ancient monasteries. In fact, the name Sarnia comes from the Romans. The German occupation of Guernsey and the other Channel Islands during the Second World War left its mark on the landscape and on the people. Each year, the island's liberation from the occupying forces is celebrated across the Bailiwick, but it's also a time to remember and reflect. So this year, as Liberation Day fast approaches, Emma is going to take us back and explain exactly what data protection and the events of the Second World War have in common. So Emma, I have to admit that being a newbie, I thought data protection was quite new and a more modern concept. Well, the first thing I would say is that privacy has been around as long as human beings have. And we often make the mistake of thinking that data protection and the protection of privacy and our concern about privacy is just ours and this generation's. But actually, it's been around for an awful long time. And you may have noticed that one of our rooms in this office is is the Aristotle Suite. And it's named that way because we want to look back at history to learn some of the lessons. And Aristotle was the first, we think, to make a distinction between public and private spheres of our lives. So, of course, we're not talking about data in the way that we are today when we're looking back at Aristotle. But we are getting a sense that privacy has always mattered, the sense that we are entitled to have something private, not just to hide things that are bad, but the legitimate expectation that certain elements of our lives are entitled to remain ours and and free from prying eyes. So obviously Aristotle, that's BC, a couple of hundred years BC. How quickly in more recent history did other people start to think about privacy? Well, it was back in 1890 that the Harvard Law Review first talked in in US law terms about the right to privacy or what was termed as the right to be let alone. But I think more recently, if you think about the early 1900s, we're starting to see a real uh, transformation in the way that data are handled, collected, the way that that information can be handled and collected really take on something new for citizens and governments alike. So it has been around for a very, very long time, but I think it's only more recently that we're starting to see the real impact uh, on individuals and society of the handling of data, both good and bad. So the beginnings of data protection then rest with those ideas of privacy? I think they do. I mean, the history of data protection is, is terribly interesting, and it's not something that's looked at enough as far as I'm, I can see. And I think it's always helpful when we're faced with compliance uh, to get on with in our day-to-day jobs that may seem a bit of a burden and a bit tiresome, to actually reflect just for a moment about their origins and what they give us as individuals and give us as a society. And I think that the, an important chapter in data protection was uh, post-World War II when there was a real sense that their work needed to be done to prevent those sorts of harms, those sorts of awful things from happening. 
and much of that was around the treatment of individuals and how they were identified by the state and how they were persecuted by the state. And that then linked into the sort of documentation of those individuals by the state. So there was a real careful thought given uh, at the end of the, of the World War and a sense that they must prevent that from happening again. Um, and that led to the European Convention on Human Rights. And a big part of that is the right to privacy from which data protection flows to a great deal. So what's the kind of data we're talking about then that helped enable the atrocities of World War II? Well, I think if you think about what identity is, first and foremost, um, we all have an identity, but we are very dependent on our state, on our government, um, to let us know what it uh, looks at in terms of our identity, how it recognises our identity. And once we have that in the form of a passport or ID card, it's very difficult to escape, and it significantly shapes so many aspects of our lives. And if you look back to Nazi Germany, who was who at that time really was uh, a matter of life and death. Um, And the recording and and bureaucratic exclusion, if you like, of of Jews began in Germany with the 1933 census. And I think we think of the word census as being something quite benign, something we just provide our information, nothing much really happens to it. It's quite interesting historically. Um, But this was the real start, Um, and from 1938 or so onwards, whenever the Germans um, invaded foreign countries, the police and security services immediately started to record, um, count, separate Jews and other what they considered to be inferior uh, minorities. And, And once they were targeted, once they were identified... Uh, They could uh, be targeted for asset confiscation, Um, the ghettos were created, they were deported, there was enslaved labour, and of course, ultimately, uh, annihilation. So uh, tragic, tragic consequences. Um, And I think it's interesting to to look back back about how they actually managed the management of that data, because, of course, in in the 1930s, there, there were no computers and it was interestingly, it was IBM that uh, provided what can be best described as sort of punch card technology that was used to create sort of enabling uh, processes and technologies which were then used for the identification and for the cataloguing uh, of individuals, which essentially this new sorting system of data uh, provided for the automization of human destruction on an extraordinary scale. And I think it's terribly important for us all uh, today to reflect on that. And presumably, you know, the Nazis occupied the bailiwick of Guernsey and the other islands. Uh, so obviously then we were affected by those Nazi laws during the occupation as well. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to, again, to think about more recent events. And we've seen discussion recently in the UK about the possibility of bringing in ID cards uh, and I think it's looking back culturally about why we're so nervous and, and the Europe, there is a definite European preference for strong data protection laws. If you look at how different culturally we approach questions of data privacy compared to the Americans for example, that's no accident, that comes from our history, a shared history in Europe um, of the awful events uh, of two world wars but specifically of world war ii in terms of the the data and what happened to especially the jewish population so i think that european legislators have um, reflected this in what they've put on the table and that's why again i think it's important we just take a moment to reflect on that and really weave this in to our social history and not treat it as a sort of clinical tick box exercise that's rather uh, 
cumbersome and tiresome, but really engage with it on a human level. And that, that's partly what this conversation is about, to encourage that. But I think it's important for each and every one of us to understand what difference having good data protection laws can really make to us. I think looking at myself personally, I was probably quite guilty of that, viewing data protection as a very modern thing, very much based on the digital age that we're in now. Uh, but actually that historical origins of it very much about that very personal data that ultimately led to millions of deaths that does put it into a different context doesn't it it does and I think it's true with many aspects of our lives that it gives us a richer perspective of where we are and how we've got here if we understand what that journey looks like and of course especially if that journey has involved murder on the scale that it did um, a real sense of, of, of an emotional attachment to what the law is designed to deliver and I think we ignore that at our peril but it's it's not a conversation it's almost um, it's rarely expressed in formal discussions you know I've been involved in data protection for many many years and it's it's something you don't often see discussed and I think that's a great shame because I think if you exposed people in this generation to the realities of what happened and the realities of how this law came about um, then I think people would engage more and of course if you engage more positively and constructively with with legislation like this you're more likely to to comply with it well which is ultimately what we we're here to do at this office. So the kind of data that was collected then that kind of data is still collected in some areas isn't it that it has a special name I believe that data yeah, special category data. It's interesting to see the, the, th- the themes of what happened post-World War II filter right through to today's legislation. It does recognise certain categories of data as being, as being needed to be afforded more and greater protection. And again, that's not accidental. If you think about the, the, the information that, that the Nazi regime wanted from individuals to enslave them and deport them and to ultimately kill them, it was about religion. It was about the Romany gypsies, about the language, um, all of those things. Uh, there is a sensitivity around people's ethnic and religious beliefs and political beliefs that we too easily write off today and think, well, it doesn't matter if I just say that I'm a Christian or I'm not. But you can see from what's going on in the world even today, um, and at the this is the, I think, 25th anniversary of Rwandan genocide, um, the atrocities that still happen in our own lifetimes, um, we have to learn the lessons of history. And it's not just about looking backwards. It's about looking backwards so that we can move forward as better human beings. I think we all naively tick certain boxes, don't we, when we're filling in forms where it does ask us very personal information. And perhaps we don't really think about who has that data, what they might then do with it. And as we've seen, unfortunately, historically, what then they, how they use it and how they use it against you. Yes, that's right. And I think the digital economy that we're now in makes the collection of that data on, on such an extraordinary scale that this conversation really is now urgent, that information that we produce sometimes without even knowing it every minute of every day with our phones and our tablets, it's valuable information and in the wrong hands. It can do huge damage to us as individuals and to societies. So I think these conversations are starting to be had. But We need to look at it in the round and understand that those conversations matter and it's not just about money, it's about being a decent human being and it's about approaching data in an ethical way, which we feel very strongly about at this office. It's also understanding the very real damage that can be done when the data is handled badly. And I guess we need to be more responsible ourselves because, like you say, we are so we share so much now about ourselves through various platforms, but especially things like social media. We, We... perhaps need to be very aware of what we're sharing and conscious of how that can be used. 
I think there are two strands to that. You're, you're absolutely right. We want to encourage individuals to be engaged with the question of data protection and understand how valuable their own data is and to take care when they're giving it away. But also so much of data processing goes on behind the scenes um, so in a way that individuals may not be aware of. So I think that's where the state has to come in and provide for legislation to ensure the protections are in place in law. So you're not just relying on the consumer or the citizen to look after this important area themselves because they may not have access to the quite complex picture of processing that's actually going on behind the scenes. So I think it's it's a combination of things. It's about governments, it's about regulators, it's about informed citizens. And if we all do that in an engaged and enlightened way, we can, we can achieve good things. So where do we fit in now in terms of helping people to protect their data? Because obviously, it, you know, lots of people don't necessarily know about how to protect their data and themselves. Yes, absolutely. We've got a number of tasks that we need to fulfil and some of that is about responding to complaints and and breaches and that's always been the case. We've always been able to respond to uh, complaints that people make about the handling of their data. But of course, in an ideal world, we want uh, organisations to comply in the first place so individuals don't feel a need to complain to us. So that then leads to how do we go about doing that? We want to educate and engage the regulated community to make sure they handle data well and we want to empower citizens to challenge and question and and take an interest in what happens to their data and that's not an easy task everyone has a different level of interest this is not about stopping people from having the choice about what happens to their data but it's about making sure that when they make choices they do so in an informed way and in a way that understands the possible future consequences of that processing. And I suppose that education as well for us to try and help people to understand and perhaps understand when their data hasn't been handled correctly. Yeah, the education is a huge piece. Um, The education, awareness and support and engagement, which we're trying to do a lot of here, because I think that if you can prevent harms from happening in the first place, that's by far the best outcome. Because if you're dealing with complaints all the time and dealing with breaches all the time, then the damage has been done and it's very hard to undo damage um, and data harms are real they do affect people so the the more we can prevent those harms from happening in the first place and and through through active uh, and and positive engagement not just from waving a big stick but explaining to people about why it matters in a really profound way um, to living a life of of dignity and respect and and inclusion um, which we all have really we're very lucky we live in, in, in a society which that isn't really threatened Um, But we should never take that for granted. So we have Facebook today and the data they have about us is very sensitive. And if they were to share that data, there could be real harm done to people. And in the past, as you mentioned before, you know, we go back to World War Two and how a high tech company still in existence today enabled the mass murder of millions of people. It was their ability to be able to process that data that helped the Nazi regime. Well, it's probably for another podcast, but we've seen how the processing by Facebook and other social media giants have influenced elections. So it's not a small leap, that. uh, And I think we need to, all of us, reflect very, very carefully on what the potential is if we carry on down this road. Thank you, Emma. Yeah, And as we look back um, on more than 70 years now from the liberation from occupation, it is a good time to reflect on you know, the way we use this kind of sensitive data now and to look back and not forget, you know, what can happen. Thank you. Thank you.